swap the pins. I've got a little herd of goats I go down. I got some livestock down the road and we check on livestock every day. Uh, we're working fence every day. This is Joe Doria. He lives just beyond the south side of San Antonio in La Soya. In his day job, he's a butcher. His labor of love, though, is taking care of his goats. So, uh, so we'll come out here and we'll check for snakes, rattlesnakes, possums, dogs, whatever we get in the pens. And we'll check our birthing pens and make sure, make sure my water is good. This morning, he's checking on his nine pregnant goats. He's expecting little baby goats any day now. Mother nature happens when mother nature happens. And then we'll come out here and we notice some, they won't leave the birthing area if they know they're going to have their babies. You'll see them walking in circles. They go into labor and they'll sit over here and they'll stay. They know when they're going to have their babies and they'll stay put. And then we'll come check Joe out. has ridden out this pandemic in his tight-knit rural community, surrounded by pastures and his goats. Lockdown in rural America has been a fundamentally different experience than it has been in cities. One pandemic, two different worlds. Let me show you what I mean. We're headed about a half an hour down the freeway to Lola, who is in the center of the city that's the center of Texas, the capital city, Austin. So right now I'm in um, picking up my cameras. I have all my equipment in the trunk of my car. I check the batteries are okay, that I have memory cards and that they are clean or they have enough space for what I'm going to shoot. So Lola Gomez is a photojournalist at a local Austin newspaper. She's originally from Venezuela. Today, she's covering a news conference. She tries to keep a safe six-foot distance from everyone else. So now I'm walking back to my car. Um, I'm still wearing my mask and I see a lot of people around me they are not because it's a really nice weather right now and it's sunny and it's not that hot so they are just walking or kayaking but they are not wearing masks As a photographer, she's captured a lot of really difficult stuff lately. It's kind of thrilling if you're a photojournalist. In times like these, you're looking at a whole new world. So, yeah, definitely that's that's something that I I try to see the positive side of this, that we are living history here right now. We are part of it. Lola and Joe live and work in very different environments. But they actually have a lot in common. Joe lives with his two sons and his wife. During quarantine, they've had game nights. You know, she'll, we'll do Yahtzee one night. And uh, last night she was teaching the kids a country western dance. Lola's mom and sister live in Florida. And she says they talk on the phone every day. We talk every day. That's normal for us. We People think that we are sick or something like that. that we talk every day. These two people and the families around them they have something else in common. Joe and Lola are both survivors of COVID-19. And although it's been weeks since either of them were in the hospital, 
they're both discovering that their experience with this disease is far from over. It might even be just beginning. From Texas Public Radio, this is Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petrie, and today, Lola will tell us her story, Joe will tell his, and we'll connect their stories to what medical experts are saying as we try to figure out what happens to your body after you survive COVID-19. So we're walking back to the back patch. There's a little 10-acre patch. So back on Joe's farm, he's making his morning rounds and seeing what new surprises he might need to tend to that day. Uh, Make sure there's no trash that blew in after these storms. And uh, make sure there's no down branches. Uh, He's been raising goats his whole life. It's in his family. In the past few weeks, though, his daily routine has changed. He can't do the work he used to do. For me right now, you can notice I'm a little out of breath. Uh, I don't think we walk more than 60, 70 yards. But before, I could jump a fence and turn on water and turn over troughs. I'm just going to come because a month earlier, Joe spent 12 days in a medically induced coma on a ventilator. His muscles withered away. He's been out of the hospital now for weeks, but he hasn't recovered his strength. Lola's recovery is going a little differently. After all, one thing we've learned is that this virus affects everyone in a slightly different way. I first talked to Lola back on April 14th. She had just gotten out of the hospital after surviving COVID-19. Today I'm fine. I'm better, way better than uh, how it was last week. Uh, I'm not coughing anymore. I'm moving more around my home without losing my breath. The only symptom that I have left is um, the lack of taste and smell. I'm regaining that slowly. She had only spent a few days in the hospital. She was in the ICU and needed supplemental oxygen, but she survived. When we spoke, she felt incredibly lucky and was ready to get back to work, which doctors said she could do after 72 hours without symptoms, and she could start running Austin's trails again. She felt like being a runner was one of the reasons COVID didn't kill her, but it came close enough. On that day in April, we joked about a lingering symptom she had, lack of taste and smell. I'm going to tell you, this is going to be disgusting, but I noticed it, that I had something in my garbage rotting when I saw a little flies. And I was like, what's going on here? And then I remember and I, had, I, I throw something in the garbage and I didn't remember that it was there. And I was like, why am I not smelling this? And it was, oh my God. When I took that garbage out, I was like, oh, now I remember. <laughs> Same with the taste. It was like, it was salty or sweet, but nothing else. No garlic, onions, nothing, nothing. It was terrible. And I, I love to cook. Lola had that symptom. And so did Joe. Uh, someone brought us a plate of barbecue chicken right when I got out of the hospital, and it smelled so good, looked so great. I put it in my mouth, and as soon as I bit it, I was like, no flavor whatsoever. In the month that he's been out, his sense of taste and smell have slowly started coming back. But they're coming back oddly different than before. The hot sauce is actually a lot hotter now than it was before. And I don't know. It's the same hot sauce. 
what I do enjoy now, I, I drink a little bit more coffee. My wife makes a great cup of coffee. Sweets. It's funny. Now I can taste sweets better than I started out. It does seem funny, you know. I'd be lying to you if I didn't admit that whenever I feel a little bit off over the last couple of months, I immediately go stick my nose in something like a coffee can to see if I can still smell it. This symptom is pretty common in COVID cases, but it took some time for docs to make the connection. Actually, a patient of mine very early on in the beginning of March, before it was quite prevalent in the U.S. even, who presented with just kind of a very mild cold and complete smell loss. And, you know, I see these... Carol Yan is one of the doctors trying to sort of piece together these clues. She works at UC San Diego. Really, we didn't think of COVID-19 at the time, but... The patient later on tested positive. Patients started coming in with what seemed like a regular cold. And, you know, it was cold and flu season, but they couldn't taste anything. And, of course, this freaked them out. To wake up all of a sudden and realize, wow, I can't taste anything. I can't smell anything. We really don't appreciate, like, how much of that impacts our daily life until you've lost it. So to get to the bottom of whatever was going on, Carol and her colleagues surveyed patients at their hospital, and they found most of the people who had lost their sense of smell also tested positive for COVID-19. Our study is one of the first that actually showed empirically with you know clinical data that smell loss is associated with uh, COVID-19. Weeks later, the CDC added loss of smell or taste to its list of possible COVID-19 symptoms. And the reason we are so worried about that is because that's an early symptom of things like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and CTE. Dr. Sita Sishadri is a neurologist at UT Health San Antonio and the director of the Glenn Biggs Institute for Alzheimer's and Neurodegenerative Diseases. And she says as soon as she heard about this symptom, she became alarmed. You know, the smell pathway is part of the oldest part of the brain linked to the limbic system and our emotions and our memories. So it worries me when I see some patient who otherwise seems well but has persistent anosmia uh, because what's down the road, we don't quite know. So over the last few months, we've come to think of COVID as an exclusively respiratory illness. And it is a respiratory illness, with many of those who die from it dying of respiratory failure. Dr. Sashadri says, though, they're learning there is a lot more to COVID than just the lungs. While the respiratory or cardiac symptoms may have been the one that put them in the ICU, COVID definitely seems to affect the brain both through the blood vessels as well as through the axons, that is, going back from the nose or other cranial nerves into parts of the brain. When you're a COVID survivor, you end up tuning into all of this talk in the medical field. Joe does not like what he's hearing. They're saying that uh, COVID has, does a, stuff, a lot of stuff with your brain. And they won't know what it exactly does your brain until years out. So I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking to myself, you know, maybe some part of my brain got damaged. Maybe something in my system is not kicking in. You know, I, I didn't jumpstart something the way I should jumpstart it. I don't know. Both Joe and Lola have been wondering, are their symptoms going to go away? Or is there something now seriously wrong with their brain? Like when I'm running, 
I start to see kind of lights and I have a permanent light in one of my eye, like something neuro neurological, maybe. What scares me is that I don't remember a lot of things that I think I should remember. And it kind of embarrasses me. You know, it's kind of like when you're talking to grandma, grandpa, okay, grandpa, that's good. We'll get back to it. Hell, I'm 56 years old. I shouldn't have these problems. Because it's something like I see lights and, and the other day I had a really bad headache when I was sleeping and it was in my in the back of my right eye. I had I had trouble to sleep. I usually have to take melatonin uh, every night and still I'm waking up in the middle of the night. So my energy level is kind of low during the day because I'm not sleeping well. So... We've heard an awful lot from a lot of places about COVID being like the flu, but these symptoms that Joe and Lola are experiencing, they're not typical flu symptoms. Here's Dr. Sishadri again. This vicious virus seems to have potentially consequences for every system in the body. Yeah, every system in the body, from the respiratory system to the circulatory system to the nervous system. COVID can devastate the lungs, the heart, the liver, the kidneys, and on and on. So, so what's going on here? Well, it turns out it's probably not the virus at all, at least not directly. We've done this before. Let's do it again. It's time to make ourselves really small, microscopic, and let's meet our immune system. I think of the immune system like an army. Uh, which would be the cells. Uh, so you'd have frontline cells that come and do damage right up front really quickly. You've had others that are, you know, sitting behind waiting to see what the right response is and then being implemented later. Dr. Joanne Turner is a vice president for research at Texas Biomedical Research Institute and the executive director of the Vaccine Development Center of San Antonio. And she knows a thing or two about the immune system. She says when you get hurt or a pathogen of some sort gets inside your body, your immune system takes notice. Uh, and what normally happens is that cells in that environment recognize something happened that isn't right. And then they send out these messages to fix it. So these messengers are called cytokines. Remember that you will definitely be able to impress your friends at parties with that word. So let's say you get a cut or infection. Cells release certain cytokines. And if, say, you have a cut, uh, other cells will tell your blood to thicken and clot so you'll stop bleeding. Good. Okay, so say you've been infected with a bacteria or a virus. Most of those don't do so well at temperatures higher than 98.6. So cytokines tell your body, hey, body, turn up the heat and you get a fever. So you stop bleeding and you heal or the virus dies and your fever breaks and you're all better. Now, when you have an infection that keeps continually switching that on and our body doesn't turn it off, that's when it goes out of control. And that's what it looks like is happening to some people who get the COVID virus. Your immune system is switched on in an uncontrolled way and cytokines start flooding your body. So they'll drive a fever that we naturally use as a defense mechanism, but drive it too strong so that we are so warm that we might be unconscious, right? So uh, we might have seizures. There's lots of side effects with really high temperature. 
they will drive all those responses where we want to make sure we can stop basic bleeding and do that too much that we clot throughout our body in different places and those can cause health uh, problems. Uh, you know, the fever can also lead to confusion. This potentially deadly immune response is called a cytokine storm. Cytokine storms are blamed for the high number of deaths during the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. An estimated 675,000 Americans died from Spanish flu. Now, one theory about what causes them is that novel viruses like the H1N1 strain of flu in 1918 and this coronavirus we're dealing with right now are strangers to our immune system. Unknown. The immune system has no idea what this thing is or what to do about it, so it just throws everything it has at it, all the tools and the toolkit, and more. In the process, it can either do serious damage to or kill the person it's trying to save. And it's not a good death if there is any such thing. Typically, uh, if you have a lot of cytokines around causing inflammation, um, you'll have a lot of leakage from blood vessels of fluids and you'll go into shock. Um, and when you're not pumping blood around properly in your body, you can go into cardiac arrest. Thankfully, medicine has come a long way since 1918. And when a cytokine storm attacks in 2020, you have a much better chance of surviving it. But all the interventions that are saving people who would certainly have died in 1918, well, they're not easy either. First thing I do is I come out and check the barns, check my water levels levels because I, I collect rainwater. And we come out and we water all our plants. It happened real fast. So I told my wife, if I get any worse, they're gonna have to take me by ambulance to the hospital. So Joe, he'd been pretty sick for a few days, and suddenly, as often happens with COVID, he felt much, much, much worse. In the evening, about 9.30, I just talk, called my wife. You know, I was in quarantine in my own room. I called her from the other side of the house and said, honey, it's time. Let's get an EMS out here. That's when reality kicked in. When the uh, EMTs show up at your front door with a gurney and they haul you out of your own house and you're looking back and you see your wife and your two kids and you're thinking, am I coming home or is this the last ride? Driving off and seeing those two kids with a nervous look in their eyes that their dad has always been a rock. Their dad has always been strong. And uh, you're looking back and you see your two beautiful children and your beautiful wife sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, this is it. So the oxygen level in Joe's blood was really low. His docs didn't want it to go any lower, so they wanted to put him on a ventilator. And then they said, Mr. Doria, this is a process. We're going to put a tube down your throat. You are going to fight it. Uh, if you fight it, we're going to have to put you in restraints. So Joe's tough, right? He's an old-fashioned kind of Texan. He decided he'd just get on with it. So he called his wife. That phone call was not a phone call I'd like to make, but I told my wife, I said, they're going to put me on a vent. They're going to put me on life support. She's like, can you explain it? You know, and no one really knows what life support is. And, you know, we're not in the medical field. You know, she's a teacher. I'm a butcher. You know, we don't know all the medical terminology, but we're rolling with the punches. And I said, look, they're going to put me in a, a medically induced coma. They're going to put me on life support. They're going to put me on vent. Um, they're going to do what they have to do to save me. She's okay. Well, they vented me and I was out in La La Land pretty quick. 
I remember going to the elevator, coming out of the elevator, getting on the fourth floor, and say, this is going to be where we're going to do it, Mr. Doria, and then say, we're going to give you the the medicine right now, the drug to, to put me in a coma, and that's all I remember. After Joe went under, his nurses and his doctors had a huge, complicated task in front of them. They had to manually take over the function of his organs. This procedure, as you can imagine, is invasive. It's bothersome. Imagine having a tube down your throat. Being awake, it would be virtually impossible. That is Dr. Diego Maselli. He is an ICU doctor at University Hospital here in San Antonio. He wasn't Joe's doctor, but he has put a lot of patients on ventilators. The actual intubation requires some skill and practice. You know, the operator will use either the laryngoscope or the glidoscope, which is the equipment that we use with the camera and the light, to look at the vocal cords, find the vocal cords in the back of the throat. You put the tube uh, through the vocal cords and push it forward. Dr. Maselli's patients are unconscious for most of this, but he does wake them up for a little while every day, except for the worst cases when they're in a complete coma. Now, as you can imagine, it's not unusual for a person to, you know, freak out a little bit when they wake up. And then they start pulling on the, not only on the IV lines, but also on the actual tube, trying to get it out, trying to get out of bed. Sometimes in these uh, occasion, uh, in these patients, that we sedate, we also, as a preventive measure, we put soft restraints on their hands. And then they watch and they wait. The human body was not meant to just lie completely flat and still for days and days, though. We have a protocol where we put them 12 hours on their bellies and then 12 hours on their backs. If they don't flip the person back and forth, that person's body weight will start to collapse their lungs. It's done very uh, gently and softly, so there's no extreme manipulation or pulling or tugging. Typically, a team of uh, six, sometimes seven providers from the medical team will uh, need to move the patient. So all of this was going on around Joe while he was in a medically induced coma for 12 days. That's, you know, almost two weeks. His body was out of commission, but his mind was still in there. He says it was dreaming. Uh, there were some little things that I saw that I can't explain right now. I kept on seeing a beautiful garden out this window, and I was trying to analyze it, and it was a gorgeous garden. It was more of a jungle, but it had a lot of trees. I could see the dew on the leaves. I could see the stems of the leaves. I could see everything green and lush, high humidity, looking out that one window. He also has this dreamlike memory of the ventilator, though he can't tell how much of it's real and how much is just part of the dream. I could feel it in my mouth. I could feel it between my, my lips and my teeth. I was trying to chew on it and I was trying to, to break it apart for some reason. And then they'd restrain me again, restrain my arms, and I was crunching on it. And I was sitting there grinding my teeth trying to bite it out. It was so invasive to me. People often relate their time on a ventilator if they survive it as trauma. It's traumatic. They struggle with having been invaded by this tube, by having been restrained, by the discomfort of having air forced into their lungs. It feels like an assault, many describe, and many experience some post-traumatic stress. 
Joe says for days after he came off the ventilator, he kept having this nightmare about somebody drowning him. He's alive. That's great, right? But but still. Imagine going to bed every night thinking, okay, when I close my eyes and I go to sleep, someone's going to try to hold my head underwater. So guess what? You don't go to bed at night. You don't go to sleep at night. You sleep during the day when the lights are on and people are around you. Dr. Maselli, the ICU doctor at university, says that for a lot of patients, coming off the ventilator is just as scary as going on. And you can imagine waking up with a bunch of faces that you have not seen. And, oh, and in the coronavirus days, now we have all this protective gear. So you'd see all these astronauts looking at you and you can sometimes not even understand them. You know, let me show you something. So he picks up this mask and he puts it over his nose and mouth. Here's the here's a mask that we use, right? I have it here handy. But when I put it on, right, it's even harder for you to understand what I'm saying, right? That was weird. It's like uh, waking up from a deep sleep. It's like when uh, you go to a vacation and, and you're so tired and you wake up in the morning and you're in a hotel room and you're like, where am I? What happened to me? Where, you know, you don't know your surroundings. And that's what happened. And then you, ha- you have your doctor talk to you like this with this muffled voice. And don't worry, everything will be okay. But it is not feeling okay, you know? It's, so it's, uh, you can imagine what the patients go through. It's, it's a tough situation. The nurses were great. You know, Mr. Dorian, you're here at the hospital. You're coming out of the coma. You're going to be woozy, blah, blah, blah. And then I started to start put two and two together, and the nursing staff was excellent. They, they would tell you, all right, Mr. Dorian, you're going to feel this. You're going to do this. We're going to give you this IV. We're going to put you on this medicine. Do you want to eat? Do you want some solid food? So they coached me through it really well. They made me less afraid of my surroundings, which was cool. Um, and I appreciate that. But uh, then your mind goes 110 miles an hour going, where was I and what happened? And then when they tell you, you've been in a medical induced coma for 12 days, you're like, holy crap. 12 days of my life were gone? And they go, yes, sir, Mr. Doria, it was very touch and go for a long time. We're glad to have you back. Your body's been through a lot. Joe lost 32 pounds while he was in the ICU. He could barely sit up on his own. And even now, a month later, he can't carry bags of feet around the farm like he used to. So after learning about the lingering effects of having survived the COVID virus, I I decided I should probably check in again on Lola Gomez in Austin. Can you hear me well? I can hear you just perfectly. She was doing so well back in April. Was she still? My skin in my hands and my feet, they are peeling like a snake, kind of. So it's kind of a new... A new skin, completely, like, very smooth. Okay, that that made me think of Joe. Joe had complained about his skin being weirdly dry. Then... Like, when I'm running, I start to see kind of lights. And I have a permanent light in one of my eyes. Oh, well, that's a little more serious. So definitely today I'm going to talk with my doctor to see if I need to go to a neurologist or something because it's something like I see lights. And, and the other day I had a really bad headache when I was sleeping and it was in, my, in the back of my right eye. And she'd been experiencing something she'd never experienced before. Remember, she's a photojournalist. She's covered shootings, 
and natural disasters and all kinds of things other people might find scary, no problem for her. But as she was getting ready to go back to work after COVID on April 20th, and that Saturday, uh, the 18th, there were protests all over the country about people getting the country open and, you know. They were gathering together without mask, without taking any any precaution about uh, the protection for the COVID-19. And I remember I was crying. I was I, I had a really bad uh, anxiety attack at that moment because I was thinking that, oh, my God, I'm going out to cover this kind of situations. And I'm just recovered from something that almost killed me practically. And and I was really afraid at that point. Yeah, that that's a lot. Lola has been talking to a therapist and doing better. Uh, she was also trying to get back to regular running, but but she kept seeing those lights and those dark spots. I'm I'm kind of scared because it's new and 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 it's something that I didn't have before. I remember one of my family and I was telling them about this, and we were worried that it was something that my retina was detaching. But when the doctor said, no, everything is okay, everything is fine, the retina is fine, my mom was happy. My mom was like, okay, she's fine. And then my sister and I, we were like, that means it's something else. Hola, Gomez. I'm right now I'm getting ready to connect with the doctors. Uh, appointment that I had to check all uh, my symptoms or side effects that maybe um, I have from COVID-19. The eye specialist told Lola that nothing was wrong with her eyes, but she's still looking for answers because she knows something is wrong. So she decided to call her general practitioner and explain what was happening. So right now I'm putting my name um, in a welcome page and I'm doing the check-in and enable my camera. I talked to her after her appointment and her doctor's thoughts were not reassuring. She said that probably um, I developed some blood clots when I was positive with COVID-19 and those, I mean, my body right now is trying to get rid of them. Remember how Dr. Turner said earlier that blood clots could be a result of that overactive immune response, that cytokine storm? To explain a, a very detailed the way that that how this works, but yeah, definitely, I was asking her if I if we can help my body to you know to get rid of them uh, on a safe way because I know you know everybody knows what can do those blood clots on you if they go to the wrong place. Lola's primary doc says there's not really anything she can do about these blood clots, but wait. She says don't run anymore, not for two or three months, and Lola says she won't run. She'll do whatever her doctor says, but she does want to see a specialist. She doesn't like the idea of clots floating around inside her body, and I totally get that. 
what if something happens? Her family is in Florida. My, my thinking is I live by myself. And if I have any situation where I need to call 911, who's going to call? Who's going to call 911 for me? So I'm, I know that I can't do anything else right now. I have to wait. I have to go for, to see a specialist and everything. But what if while I'm waiting, something happened and nobody can help me? She's scared. She's scared and she's kind of angry. It doesn't make sense when you are having this issue, when you are a healthy person, when you take care of your body uh, the way that I was doing it. And, and suddenly I'm in the middle of this situation where I don't know what, I mean, what, what is the next step? It, this is going to be a long journey. Joe is also preparing himself to live with COVID for a long time. It is a long recovery process. You know what? It's the hand that we got dealt. You can't change nature. You can help, you can help be part of the solution, or you can be a big part of the problem, like not wearing your mask and not wearing your gloves and not taking this thing seriously. It is serious. For Joe, his recovery journey has been just as much psychological as it has been physical. It's been kind of tough for him to accept how dramatically his body has changed and how slow this recovery is. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'd be a liar if I told you differently. I am frustrated. I am starting to let everybody control things that I used to control. I don't go and feed goats every day. My kids do it. A good friend of mine called me the other day. He goes, Joe, I got this really nice walker. I know you're still on the walker. I'd like to give it to you. It's a very expensive walker. It's a very nice walker. I think you can use it. And I would be very proud if I could just give it to you. And I just said, thank you. In the old days, I would say, hey, buddy, no, give it to the nursing home. Give it to somebody else that needs it more than me. Give it to the hospital. Give it to this charity. It makes him feel good to give me something. And it makes me feel good that he feels good. I just got to learn to do that stuff. And, you know, and it's hard for me. Uh, so my life has changed. And I'm learning to say thank you more often than I used to. Both Joe and Lola feel like the communities around them in Joe's case, a small, warm, rural one, and in Lola's case, the dense, active Austin community, they just don't see the virus the way they see the virus, and it bothers them. It's frustrating, it's painful, it's sad, and it's frustrating when, when, when I remember or, or when I see people going out like regular, they, don't, they have no idea how bad this could be for any of them. Anybody, everybody's in risk. I spent 12 days on life support, 22 days of my life in a hospital. Um, you know, a little over a quarter million dollars in medical expenses, um, you know, pushing almost a half a million dollars. All this can be avoided if we try to slow down this coronavirus and use common sense. This is real, guys. This is serious. So it seems like we're all sick of this pandemic. I'm sick of this pandemic. I have a 15-year-old who's at a developmental stage where social interaction with people her own age is, is so important for healthy growth, and she's just not getting it. So, yes, we're sick of it. 
But I guess a lot of us have decided because we're sick of it, it's over. We're just going to pretend there isn't a virus out there stalking us. After all, most people recover, right? It's fine. It'll be fine. It's not fine. Let's set aside for just a minute the fact that Centers of Disease Control says more than 110,000 Americans have died from this disease in about four months. 110,000 Americans. I said we were going to set that aside. We'll set that aside. Let's focus now on the nearly 2 million cases of COVID that have been confirmed in the United States. These people haven't died. These are confirmed cases. How many of them are suffering like Joe and Lola? How many will? For how long? These are some of the many things we don't yet know about this disease, and it's why my daughter is still interacting with friends mostly virtually. It's why we wear masks. It's why we distance when we're out and still try to avoid going out as much as possible. Listen, I know it's hard. It's so hard. But you've heard Joe and Lola. That is so much harder. No matter how much we want it to be over, this pandemic isn't over. And COVID is not messing around. So you may have noticed it's been a couple of weeks since there has been a new episode of Petri Dish. And that brings me to this. On Saturday, May 23rd, my brother died. His name was John Petrie. He was 49 years old. So this episode of Petri Dish and every episode from now on and everything I do for every single day for the rest of my life is dedicated to my brother. Thank you, buddy, for always being my biggest cheerleader and my biggest fan. And now the credits. This episode of Petri Dish was produced by Ben Henry and Dominic Anthony Walsh. Our sound design is by Jacob Rosati. Our executive producer is the inimitable Fernanda Camarena. Our news director is Dan Katz. This podcast is a production of Texas Public Radio. Talk to you soon. <laughs>